Well, we're coming to the end of our studies in Elijah and Elisha. In September, I want to start a, a new series. Um, but actually, there's lots more incidents in the life of Elisha that I could have picked out to, to speak on. And the problem has been selecting two final ones to conclude with. And I just want to encourage you, um, in the weeks to come, go and read further in the story of Elisha, because miracles are just dropping out the pages on every page. And it's a, a real... Um, Encouragement to faith for us. I mean, I could have spoken about Elisha praying and bringing a a dead child back to life. Or miraculously feeding over a hundred prophets with a loaf of bread. We could have looked at the capture of the king of Aram. Or the besieging of Samaria by Ben-Hadad. And God's mighty deliverance of the city. In accordance with Elisha's words in chapter 6 and 7. We could have considered... How Elisha fulfilled the instruction of the Lord that was first given to Elijah to go and anoint Hazael of Aram and Jehu of Israel in accordance with the word of Elijah. We could consider the fulfillment of the prophecy of Elijah to the house of Ahab and the death of Jezebel, that 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 house would be wiped out. And all these stories and many more fill the pages of two kings and demonstrate how Elisha was God's man at a crucial time in history. However, I just want to focus on two specific incidents from the remainder of the passage. This week, I want to look at the healing of Naaman. And then the last week, next week, I just want to look at Elisha's deathbed scene. And both of them have significance for us, I believe. So let's turn, first of all, to 2 Kings and chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. And the man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who's in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now, as this letter comes to you, behold, I've sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he's seeking a quarrel against me. And it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? (laughs) Now let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you'll be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he would surely come out and meet to me and stand and call on the name of his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not 
Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the, it's easy for me to say, better than all the waters of Israel. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. So we have this character, Naaman, the commander of the army of Aram. Who was Aram? Anyone know? There was a kingdom there. Well, it was an area in what is modern-day Syria, and it was based around Damascus. It was in the Damascus area. We see Damascus on the, on the news almost every day, or we certainly have over the last few months. Well, that's where Aram was based. And it was a small king kingdom, and it was part of the bigger kingdom of Assyria, the, the empire of Assyria. But it was a small kingdom. But it was sort of like just north of Israel. So what you've got throughout the narrative and it's throughout the narrative, this whole part of the narrative, is the northern kingdoms of Israel fighting with the king of Aram over who's the dominant force in that whole bit of territory. Now, ultimately, it was the Arameans who won out because the northern kingdom of Israel, about a couple of hundred years later, or a hundred years later, was taken into captivity up there. And when Jesus was alive, he and his disciples spoke Aramaic. They spoke the language of the Arameans. They didn't speak Hebrew. Such was the dominant domination of these, this small kingdom. But in the passage, we see we're at a time before that where there's just this battle going on between them. They keep falling out and they keep going to war with each other. And in the narrative, um, there seems to be a vying for control over the region and constant wars going on. And it was into that situation that that situation very similar to what we see in Syria right now, where Elisha was prophesying and bringing the word of God and demonstrating the power of God through healings and miracles and so on. Now, Naaman was a great military commander. But you will see he was also the enemy of Israel. This isn't some local tribesman who's just jumped up and he's the enemy and he's the enemy commander and he's the one who's been bringing war against them and in that war he's taken captured a young israeli girl as a slave and of course his problem is that despite being a great military commander he's also suffering from this horrible disease leprosy which gradually means his nerve endings are dying one by one. And his skin will be changing color as it does so. And the slave girl suggests that Naaman seek out Elisha for his healing. Now, there's no record up until this point anywhere in scripture other than um, a temporary leprosy with uh, Miriam that anybody was healed of leprosy. And yet, such is the slave girl's faith. She believes that if this, her, her employer, her slave master, Naaman, will go to see Elisha, he will be healed. He will be restored. And so Elisha come, goes to his own king and says, I'd like to go over to the enemy 
But I'm not going to, to work with them. I just want this slave, what the slave girl said is, if I go there, I might get healed. King says, all right, I'll give you a letter. And Naaman goes with his letter, and he goes to the king of Israel, and he says, my king sent me. I've come to you to get healed. And the king says, well, I can't do anything about it. What do you want me to do? I think this is just a trap. I think he's trying to pick a quarrel with me so that we end up going to war. Has anyone seen the film 300? Hands up. You wicked people. (laughs) It's about, of course, the Battle of Thermopylae, ultimately. And at the start of the film, you see Darius sending, and this is recorded by the historian Herodotus, um, he sends two men to the Spartans, and he demands of them earth and water. And basically, if somebody came to me and demanded of me earth and water, I would give him earth and I'd give him water, and that meant he, I was acknowledging that he was king over me, that I was coming subject to him. So what happened when the, when the Darius's men came to the Spartans? They took the two men who had come and they threw them in a well and said, collect your own earth and water from down there. And of course they died. And that provoked the battle with, between um, the Medes and Persians and the Greeks that ultimately led to Alexander's victories. <laughs> but that's how a battle can be provoked by doing something. And this is what the king of Israel thinks that the Aramaic king is doing. He's sending something to provoke a battle between them so that they can go to war and the Arameans can win. Um, and then, so the king of Israel tears his fine clothes and Elisha says, what have you torn up your clothes for? Torn up your best suit? That's not going to do any good, is it? So, Ar- so Elisha says to the king, look, send him to me. I'll sort him out. And so Naaman, with all his tribe, all these people who have come with him, they troop down into another part of the city, and they stand outside Elisha's door. Can you imagine now, you're sitting there one day as a prophet of the Lord, and outside comes the enemy's commander, and it says he's got his chariots with him, and his other soldiers, they're all standing there, and they're knocking on the door. And Elisha doesn't actually even bother to come to the door. Elisha just sends somebody with a message. He doesn't even give him the time of day. He says, go and tell him, that if he goes and dips himself seven times in the Jordan, he'll be healed. And Naaman is completely affronted by this. He doesn't even bother to come and see me. And he goes off in a huff. See, Elisha won't meet his expectations in terms of his actions. Naaman wants Elisha to come out and call on his God and wave his hands over the place. And Naaman will be healed. And Elisha just says... Go and dip in the river. And Naaman goes off in this huff, thinks he's been dishonoured. And then his servants start reasoning with him, and, he say, and they say, look, if he'd asked you to go and s- slay a dragon somewhere, or go and defeat this kingdom over here, you'd have done it. Surely it's not a big issue for the sake of your healing to go and dip yourself in this river, is it? And Naaman thinks to himself, well, perhaps they're right. And so he goes off, dips in the Jordan. He's willing to listen to advice, and he's healed. And as a result, he comes to faith. just want to read a bit further down. Naaman, Naaman returns to Elisha, 
Verse 15, when he returned the man to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him and said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I'll take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, If not, please let your servant at least be given two mules, load of earth, for your servant will go no longer burn, offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. In other words, the ultimate consequence was not just a healing, but Naaman coming to faith, coming to believe in the God of Israel. So that when he returned home, he was worried that he would still have to go into the pagan temples with the king of Aram. But he, was, he said, will the Lord forgive me if I have to do that because of my job? And Elisha says, go, it's okay. You've come to faith. And I think there are three things we can learn out of this passage. The first thing is that obedience is better than sacrifice. Naaman's obedience to the word was more important than any ceremony that Elisha might have performed. See, ceremony is only important in as much as it leads us to God. But actually, God wants our heart. God is not looking for our gifts, whether our talents, our abilities, or our material wealth. What God wants is our heart. Obedience is the most important thing we can give to God. The question is, are we willing to be obedient with all that we have? Are we willing to be obedient with all that we have? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What do you value most in life? What is the most important thing to you? Because that is your treasure. And are you willing to be obedient that God's word, God's revelation, God's direction, God's destiny for you takes precedent over your treasure? Are you willing to surrender it for the sake of of the kingdom. There's a man called Rhys Howells. Many will have heard of him. He was um, a Welshman about 100 years ago um, with a tremendous intercessory ministry. And God used him powerfully because he was willing to be obedient. And at one stage in his life, God told him, God gave him revelation that he wanted him to go overseas on mission for, for a period of time. And he was married. He wanted him and his wife to go. But he also had a son. And Reese Howells knew that to go overseas, it wouldn't be appropriate to take his son with him. So he gave his son up to be adopted by another member of the family. And he left his son and went overseas on mission. Now, God isn't calling every one of us to give up something like that. But because he was willing... In later years, 
Reese Howes received his son back. But was effective because he was willing to be obedient. Where is our heart? Where is our heart? Is it really committed to God? Or is it committed to ourself and the things that we have and the things that we want? In the New Testament times, the test of faith was, are you going to surrender to Caesar as Lord, i.e. to the pagan state, or to Jesus as Lord, the kingdom of God? And we heard this morning, many of them paid for that decision with their lives. They chose the kingdom of God as opposed to yielding to the state. When we are faced with the decision between myself as Lord or Jesus as Lord, do we choose self or God? Discipleship is in, in the kingdom of God is about total to surrender to God, even when it costs us something. That's the very key mark of a disciple. Surrender, willingness to offer it all and to hold nothing back. A man called Dr. B.J. Miller once said, it's a great deal easier to do that which God gives us to do, no matter how hard it is, than to face the responsibilities of not doing it. I'll say that again. It's a great deal easier to do that which God gives us to do, no matter how hard it is, than to face the responsibilities of not doing it. See, each one of us every day has a choice to surrender to the will of God or to put ourselves on the throne of our lives. And God is looking for a heart. He's not looking for um, religious obedience. He's looking for a heart that says, God, you're number one. You're Lord, and I give myself and everything I have to you. And it was Naaman's obedience to the revelation of God that came through Elisha that led to his miracle. And your obedience to God will lead to many miraculous interventions of God in your life. Is Jesus Lord? The second thing that this story story teaches us is obedience, even when what God is telling us doesn't make sense. That's when it's difficult. For sense, for Naaman was going out and doing a mighty deed or having someone wave their hand over him. Sense for Naaman was not going and dipping in the river seven times. But you see... God is more interested in what happens in us than what happens to us. I'll say that again. God is more interested in what happens in us than what happens to us. He's more interested in that which will change and bring eternal value than that which is just temporal. See, God's heart for Naaman was not just that he would be healed from his leprosy, but that he would come to faith. And all of those circumstances were were worked out in order to bring him to that place. That was he willing to be obedient in that which he did not understand in order to see God's intervention in his life. God didn't just want to heal Naaman's leprosy, but to break his pride 
so that he would acknowledge God as Lord. And God wants to heal us and deliver us from our situations. But he also wants to use those things to help shape our character and form us into the people he wants us to be. See, circumstances aren't given just to provoke us or just to give us difficulty. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is not perfect. We live in bodies that are not perfect and occasionally wear out or get broken. And we live in circumstances that are not perfect because we haven't got all treasure available to us. But in the circumstances of life, there are things that God can do with us that will change us and transform us. But it's how we go through them. As I said, Naaman could have gone back to, gone, gone back to, to Aram and said, if God was a God of love, he would have healed me. And he would have missed out on the blessing of God. But God was a God of love and is a God of love. And the way he chose was not just about healing Naaman, but about bringing him to another level of faith. Which required Naaman not to understand all, but just to do. You see, the best way out of any circumstance is always through the circumstance. God just doesn't want us to rescue us out of things, but to help us to get through them. Because it's the passing through that will actually bring the transformation and the change that he has in his heart for us. Sometimes we may not understand why something has happened or why God is asking us to do this thing. But as we trust him, he will provide a way through. And that's the key, trust. Trusting that God is good all the time. That what he does for us isn't for our bad, but he's ultimately for our good. And that that which he has takes us into, he will take us through. Do we really want to trust him? Because he's trustworthy and he will see us through if we place our trust in him, even in the midst of our circumstances. We may not be sure, we may be shaky, we may be wobbly along the way, but if we put our trust in God, he will see us through because that's what he promises in his word. And the third thing here is that God wants to save all. God wants to save all. There is nobody out there that God doesn't want to save. There is nobody beyond the power of God to save them. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. There is nobody whom God doesn't want to save. There is nobody out there that God does not want to bring through to faith. There is no one beyond the power of redemption. There is nobody who is too far gone that God doesn't want to and cannot bring them back if they're willing. Naaman was an enemy of Israel. You know, if I was sitting there as an Israeli, I would be thinking, he's the last person on earth I want to see saved. But that's not the way God sees it. He'd been responsible for the death of many Israelite soldiers and the capture of many Israelite slaves. 
And yet God in his mercy reached out to him, healed him and brought him to faith. God wants to reach out to our enemies. God wants to reach out to Muslims. God wants to reach out to Hindus. God wants to reach out to the person, the pagans, the person who provokes us, the person who we consider our enemy, whoever it might be. God loves them. God wants to reach them. Is there someone at work or in the neighborhood who we don't get on with? Is there someone from our past who has hurt us? God wants to reach them. God wants to heal them. God wants to save them. For God so loved the world that he gave. Now he may not be calling us to reach that person. But we can pray for them. We can pray that God in his mercy will reveal himself and will draw them into them to himself. God may not use us directly to reach them, but our prayers may make the difference in bringing them to faith. See, in the Old Testament, there are many occasions of this. There are many incidents of those who were not Israelites coming in because of grace. We could talk about Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, who, because she was willing to reach out and help, God looked with grace and she became part of the family, the household of Israel. We could think of Ruth, the Moabitess, who was on the outside, different nation, yet God brought her in. And both of those women are part of the lineage of Christ and of David. We could talk about Obed-Edom or Uriah the Hittite, both who, who were commanders in David's army. They were outsiders. They weren't Israelites, but God brought them into the purposes. We could talk about the fact that Jonah, when he was called, finally, he went to a city called Nineveh, which was again an Assyrian city up there, part of the enemy, and yet he went, and through him, that whole city was saved. And we can talk about Naaman. See, just because somebody is not part of us, or not part of our family, or not somebody we like very much, or we consider an enemy, doesn't mean God doesn't love them, and doesn't want to save them, and doesn't want to bring them in. And who knows, God may use even us to reach out to that person. Who knows, our act of grace might model something of God's grace. Who knows, our word of prayer might break something and bring revelation. God has a plan to reach many with his good news. The mission of the church is to reach the world. It's not our mission, but it's God's mission. We need to find ways of partnering with him in the task. Because actually he loves the world and we just work with him in order to make that happen. And I want to encourage you this week, look for evidence of his presence in the world. See if you can be the means of reaching the lost in your situation in partnership with him. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who despitefully use you, as Jesus said. Pray for the enemies. Pray for the people whom, whom you think the, you least want to be with. 
But actually, they're the ones who are most in need of the grace of God. Pray for those whom you see, you rub shoulders with. Pray for those that, that you see on the news. How about the two young men who killed Lee Rigby? As an Englishman, I want to see them executed. As a Christian, I want to see them saved. That's where the gospel has its impact. The grace of God extended. And the love of God reaching out in mercy. Because if God can save me, he can save them. And if God can save you, he can save anybody. And please hear me right on that. <laughs> Amen. Father, I just pray that something of your word will reach into our hearts. And Lord God, we might have a heart for those who are beyond the pale, as it were, outside of our experience. And Lord God, whom we might even classify as enemies. Lord, help us to partner with you in every way possible, that your good news, your message of love, your message of grace, your message of hope might be heard in a lost and needy and dying world. And Lord God, may we be examples through our obedience, through our grace, and through all the ways that you want us to be to reach out to this place in Jesus' name. Amen.